The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from Peter's first letter, chapter 1, the first two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be to Christ. Thank you, Buzz. And good morning. Morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to the Sunday after Easter. I hope that Holy Week was, um, was wonderful for you and that uh, your heart is uh, just as full of the hope of Christ today as it was a week ago on Easter. And uh, uh, like Jennifer mentioned a couple minutes ago, we are starting a new series on uh, Peter's first letter, also known as First Peter. And uh, I'll start this way. There Um, In 11 years of going to concerts at the Ryman Auditorium, uh, there are two memorable moments uh, in particular that warmed my heart and that were unique among all the other moments. Uh, One happened uh, several years ago uh, with an artist named Jason Isbell, and uh, he introduced a song sharing about his journey to sobriety from alcoholism, and then he sang a song, and one of, the, one of the lines in the song goes, I sobered up and swore off that stuff forever this time, and the whole crowd just erupted in, in an ovation, uh, just a spontaneous ovation. And the other was this past Friday night uh, when we saw uh, Lady A uh, at the Ryman and Charles Kelly, who has been very publicly uh, in rehab for Uh, also for alcoholism, and is now nine months sober, and he wrote a song during this season of recovery, uh, and the song was to whiskey. Singing to whiskey, uh, he sang these words, well, you gave me the courage the night I met my wife. You helped me make her laugh until you helped me make her cry. You started out a friend turned into something else. Now I like who I am with you sitting on the shelf. And then again, the crowd just erupted in um, supportive applause. And um, what is it about the human heart that responds to a recovery story, that responds to somebody transparently, vulnerably, putting their worst moments, worst seasons out there, humbling themselves, going through the process of recovery, and then sharing about it. And, and, and what, what is it that's so universally warming about that? I think that we get a hint here as we look at 
Peter also, in different ways, having hit bottom, having left behind his own self-destructive ways, and now living and writing and communicating in sobriety and health. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, when Jesus calls a man or a woman, he bids that person to come and die. Now, there had been some dying that, that Peter had done in the same way that the people in recovery uh, have to die to addictions. Peter had died to an old way of being impulsive, um, you know, lacking in um, impulse control, uh, racism, xenophobia, a lot of issues Peter has been, um, you know, has, has been dealt with by the Lord. So much so has the Lord dealt with Peter that he changed his name to Peter. He used to be Simon, son of Jodah. Now he's Simon Peter, or sometimes, uh, just like here, simply Peter, which is a name that Jesus gave to him uh, after he made his confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, you are Peter. And on this rock, the, the word Peter, Petra, means rock, uh, I will build my church, referring to Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. <clears throat> and so Peter, coming straight out of the gate in First Peter here, is letting us know, he's signaling to us before he gets into the rest of the letter, that it is not just your name that Jesus wants to change, it's the very foundations upon which you build your life. Jesus is not interested in being a redecorator of your life. He wants to be a renovator. He's, into, he's in the demolition and rebuilding business, not the tweaking business. And we see that uh, in Peter's words here, uh, just these, these two powerful verses uh, in three ways. That he will rebuild your identity, he will rebuild your purpose, and he will re- rebuild your understanding of choice. So we'll start with the first, that Jesus will rebuild your identity. Again, Peter has a new name. Peter is a new name. He had once been Simon, son of Jonah. Now he is Peter, as it says in verse 1, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So those are three words that define the fundamental identity, the primary identity, the the all-consuming identity of every person who identifies as a Christian. You are of Jesus Christ before you are of anything or anyone else. There's a heart conversion and there is a social conversion that are both alluded to here in Peter's text. The heart conversion, we already sang from that place when we sang, Thou and Thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure Thou art. The moment Jesus calls you to Himself, the moment Jesus calls you to Himself, as He had called you know, Peter to follow Him uh, from His vocation of fishing, Everything prior to that moment becomes secondary to Jesus Christ. And we see this <coughs> to, as, as Peter writes to the readers. God is now their father. Jesus, the son, is now their Lord. So he refers to the obedience to Jesus Christ that, that's, that's essential for followers of Christ. And the spirit 
is the sanctifier. And the sanctifier is the one who, who makes us more and more into the likeness of Christ over time in a progressive, you know, forward-moving, gradual sort of way. And it's as if the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God is hovering over uh, the, the life and the heart of a believer in Christ in the same way that the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos of a formless and void existence and then spoke creation into existence. And every time the Spirit spoke a word, something good happened. Things got better with, with each subsequent statement each day. You know, God said, let there be, and there was. And then the next day, God said, let there be, and there was. And things got increasingly good until at the very end of the creative process, it became very good in a superlative way. But it all started with the Holy Spirit hovering over the chaos in the same way that the Holy Spirit, and I got this insight from Tim Keller, the, the Holy Spirit hovers over the chaos of your life, hovers over the chaos of your heart, with the intent of speaking into all of that chaos and remaking you into something good and ultimately into someone very good in the likeness of Jesus Christ. So there's this tethering that, that, that Peter is saying that, that, that you, you have now as somebody who, whose fundamental identity is that you are of Jesus Christ. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, Peter doesn't address the audience in terms of ancestry, moral background, social status, wealth. Their basic identity is now Christian, not these other things. So there's a heart conversion, but there's also a social conversion. Who your people are, in a lot of ways, stays the same. And in other ways, it's radically transformed, who your people are. Verse 2, easy to miss this. Uh, Peter opens the letter in the same way that the Apostle Paul opens a lot of his letters with the words, grace and peace be multiplied to y'all. So if you, if you read the original language, it says y'all. Grace and peace be multiplied to y'all. He's speaking to a plural. He's speaking to communities, not to individuals. And that's really important in, in an individualistic you know, me, myself, and I kind of culture and way of thinking to realize that the Bible hardly ever addresses individuals. And it almost always is speaking to communities. And he's saying grace and peace. Well, what's the significance of that? Well, Peter is a Jew, and his primary audience consists of Greeks, of Gentiles, of, his, of the ethnic other. And Grace to you is a standard Gentile or Greek salutation in a letter written to another Gentile or or, or Greek. Peace to you is a standard Jewish salutation in a letter written to another Jewish person. And he's putting them both together. But for somebody like Peter, who was raised in, in, in a Jewish culture... That, that believed that to come in contact with Gentiles and Greeks would contaminate you. This was radical. It represented a radical transformation that began with moments like the one where he and his friends had been fishing all night and caught nothing, and then Jesus is on the shore in his third resurrection appearance and says to Peter and the others, cast your nets to this side of the boat. And the significance is, on this side of the boat, 
was where the, the Jewish communities lived. And on this side of the boat, where, where, where Jesus said to, to cast the nets, was where the Gentile and Greek communities lived, like the region of the Gerasenes, like the, where the Mark, Mark, 5, Mark chapter 5 demoniac lived. That's a very symbolic statement to say, cast, cast the nets over to this side of the boat. And, and then Jesus gave them the biggest catch that they'd ever had of 153 fish. Uh, to, to compliment and illustrate his teaching, I will now make you fishers of men. Peter, I will now make you a fisher of the Gentiles. And there's going to be abundant fruit that comes out of that. So that's one experience. And then there's the 10th chapter of Acts where, where the Spirit of the Lord <coughs> visits Peter, gives him a vision of animals, reptiles, and birds which were forbidden... Uh, and, and to eat those animals, as, as, a, as a Jewish man at that time like Peter, w- would also contaminate you. These were considered unclean foods, but the vision said, take and eat. And then that, that same voice says to him, I want you to go to a, the home of a man named Cornelius, who's a Gentile. I want you to go in his home. And Peter had never been in the home of, of, a, of a Greek or of a, of a Gentile. I want you to go into his home and I want you to tell him about the gospel. I want you to tell him about how to find life in Jesus Christ. And Peter's answer was, Lord, I, I've, I've never been in contact with anything or anyone unclean. And, and then the message of the Lord is, do not call unclean what the Lord has declared to be clean. <clears throat> and so it's through those experiences that Peter's bias, that Peter's um, xenophobia uh, is gradually mortified. But it's not this, just the Gentiles' ethnicity that, that, that had become a sanctification hurdle and process for Peter. It was also his bias against their behaviors. And if, if you look at, at chapter 4, it reads this way. Peter's writing this way about the life of the Greeks and the Gentiles. He says, among them there is sensuality, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry, and they are surprised when you don't join them in these things. And yet, part of what he's doing is saying, by the mercies of God, people who have lived in this way are not exempt from from being brought into the, the kingdom and family of God because of their moral history. Those hurdles don't exist with Christ. Christ, his mercy is abundant. His transforming power is abundant. And, 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 and the invitation goes to every nation, tribe, and tongue. You know, for that moment, Peter must have held on to memories like the one from Luke chapter 15 where, where the people who, have, who would have raised people like Peter in the synagogue, the the teachers of the law, the scribes and the Pharisees, you know, the, the professional, um, you know, temple leaders uh, who, you know, have this upstanding reputation for, for moral, you know, superiority and, and knowledge of Scripture and all these other things. It says that they are muttering because Jesus Christ welcomes sinners and eats with them, has table fellowship with them, invites them into friendship. And so part of the takeaway here is your people, when you become a follower of Christ, when you believe in Christ, your people, your first family 
immediately becomes the people of Jesus. That was even true for Jesus. You know, people, people came to Jesus one day and said, your mother and your brothers, they're, they're looking for you. And, and, and Jesus says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Who are my sisters and mothers and fathers? Isn't it the people that I'm already with right now? Whoever does the will of God, that is my brother. That is my sister. That is my mother. And what does it mean to do the will of God? See, that can be tricky, too, because we can start to get into moralistic questions. And, you know, you've got to behave this way to do the will of God. But the thing, the thing is, doing the will of God is about laying aside any dependence on your behavior and doing what Jesus said is doing the will of God, which is to behold the Son of God and believe in Him. The very first work that, that, that Jesus calls you to do is stop working and believe, to stop striving and receive the mercy that he has for you. One sure sign that your heart is moving in this direction, especially with the social conversion aspect, which is always a byproduct of the the heart conversion, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and the second command is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Who is my neighbor? Your ethnic opposite, your political opposite, your, your socioeconomic opposite, <coughs> all the rest. But a sure sign that you are becoming more and more at home with Jesus is that you're becoming more and more at home with other people who are at home with Jesus, regardless of whether or not they align with you in any other area of your life. If you feel more at home with people who share your faith than you do with people who share your hobbies but don't share your faith, that's a good sign. If you share or if you feel more at home with people who share your faith but not your education level who don't share your faith, that's a good sign. Or you could add to that your income bracket or your political commitments or even your last name. If you feel more at home with somebody you have nothing in common with except for Jesus than you do with somebody you have everything in common with except for Jesus, it's a good sign. There's a social conversion that happens. He will rebuild your identity. He'll also rebuild your purpose. So the purpose of a Christian is not the pursuit of one's own happiness and fulfillment. The purpose under Jesus Christ is self-denial, and and, and the the irony is that self-denial actually carries with it the byproduct of of meaning and purpose and fulfillment. But things like meaning and purpose and fulfillment that that self-oriented people chase after directly and often fail to get it, as the book of Ecclesiastes reminds us, Those things are abundantly more available, meaning, gladness, joy, to those who don't seek those things directly, but who seek Christ directly, who lay down their lives for the sake of Christ, and and meaning and purpose and joy become byproducts that are yours in abundance. So there's a whole reinterpretation of, of pain and hardship that has to happen for our hearts to become increasingly converted to who Jesus is and what it means to live fully human in a hard, tragic world. 
One example in the Bible is a man named Joseph, all the way back in the first Bible, uh, <coughs> Bible book called Genesis. Joseph is betrayed by his brothers. Very, very painful. If you've ever been betrayed by one person, imagine being betrayed by many people and they're all your siblings. And so they betray him so badly that they, they sell him into slavery. And then in slavery, he gets propositioned by a powerful man's wife and he refuses because he loves God and she accuses him of trying to assault her. And so there's this whole false accusation that he's carrying that he gets arrested for and imprisoned for and he stays faithful to the Lord even in prison under those circumstances. And the byproduct is that eventually he gets noticed by the Egyptian pharaoh himself for his superpowers that that God has given him even from prison to the end that ultimately and eventually Joseph gets promoted to be the prime minister of Egypt and then... His brothers are starving, and, and, and the only nation that has food available is Egypt. And so they come to Egypt and beg for food, and then they realize that Joseph, their brother, is the prime minister. And they're like, oh no, we're toast. We're toast. If, if there was ever a time for retaliation, if there was ever a time for revenge, it's now. He's going to kill us. And they're terrified, and he discovers their identity, <laughs> And he sees their fear, and they're, they're begging him for mercy, and he says, oh, no, 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 no. What you meant for evil, and it was evil, what you meant for evil, God intended for good for the saving of many lives, including yours. I will not position myself as your enemy. I will not strike back. I will not retaliate. I will care for you. Now bring my father, and bring my younger brother, whom I've never had the pleasure of meeting, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Another would be the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, where he talks about his famous thorn in the flesh, which is described as a messenger of Satan. And while also being described as a messenger of Satan, whatever that thorn was, it is also described as something that is given to Paul. And that the word given in the Greek is charis, and that's the same word that we have in the Greek that gives us the word grace. So God somehow takes something that that Satan intends for evil and turns it into something that accomplishes good in Paul's life. Paul says it very explicitly, to keep me from becoming prideful, from becoming conceited, from becoming cocky. God gives me a messenger from Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord, Paul says, to remove it from me, but the Lord said to me, my grace, my charis, is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul goes on to say, that is why I've come to delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm weak, that's when the power of Christ rests on me. And then here's Peter, a martyr in waiting, who's writing (coughs) to persecuted Christians, and that they're suffering so much in in the society in which they live that, that Peter refers to them as exiles. You know you don't belong here. You know you don't belong here. 
You belong in Eden. You belong in the new heaven and the new earth. That's your home. And you're stuck right now in the middle. You are, in many ways, you are in many ways a, a, a refugee, spiritually, emotionally, personally, socially, relationally, vocationally. You're not at home here. You're not meant to feel at home here. You're an alien. You're a stranger. And he points that out. But you are of Christ. Christ is your home. Even here, Christ is your home. And Christ is best known, and this is good news for people who are about to spill their, have their blood spilled through persecution, Christ is best known for the blood donor that he is. Peter refers in verse 2 to the sprinkling of Christ's blood for the atonement of our sins. The most hideous act in history, Jesus being crucified, being filleted on the cross, the most hideous act in history is also the loveliest act in history, all at the same time, because what men intend for evil, God intends for good, for the saving of many lives. Jesus' beauty is, is most vividly revealed in the marring and the decimation of his beauty. And this whole principle is woven, this principle of, of God bringing good out of what evil intends for evil, it's woven throughout the fabric of the universe. Just think about it. Every time you put something in your mouth to nourish you, it's something that was once living and is now dead. Dead grapes, dead wheat is what we're going to nourish our bodies with in a minute. You cut a piece of meat, it's from a dead animal. You eat salad, it's from dead vegetables. But because something else has died, your life gets supported and sustained and built up. It's in the fabric of the universe. Jesus put it this way, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it falls into the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. Much, much fruit. That's metaphor, and that's also reality about how he, when he was a dead man, was planted into the ground. After the sprinkling of his blood all over the ground, he was planted into the ground. He wasn't buried, he was planted. He was buried, but, but he was planted. He rose on the third day. We celebrated this last week. Worship is now on Sunday instead of Saturday because he rose from the dead on Sunday. Every Bible author was a sufferer, a slave living in the desert, dealing with the pains of war, persecution, execution. Even the guy who seemed to have it all, the writer of Ecclesiastes, dealt with existential misery. That nothing's going to give us gladness unless we get gladness as a byproduct of denying ourselves daily, taking up our cross, and following Jesus Christ in faithfulness and obedience. So he'll rebuild your purpose, and then lastly and quickly, he'll rebuild your understanding of choice. So um, if you know my family, you know that before we came to Nashville 11 years ago, we lived in New York City for several years. And one very, very common thing in New York City is that, that on street corners there will be 
um, these faithful Orthodox Jewish men, usually, usually younger, and they will have a stack of what looks like you know, either business card or pam- cards or pamphlets, and they'll ask you, are you Jewish? And if your answer is no, they'll say, okay, have a, have a nice day. But if your answer is yes, they, they will want to share with you their pamphlet or their, or their card, which, which will typically have a picture and a biography of their chosen rabbi. And they're trying to recruit you to also follow their chosen rabbi with them. That, that's the way it's always been in Judaism. You choose your rabbi. Jesus' particular choice was a rabbi named Hillel, who was a bit more progressive in his thinking than other rabbis, right? Jeff Creasy, we learned this, in, in, and Lynn, we learned this in Israel just, just a while ago, that Jesus was a liberal, y'all, in his day. No, not that he dismissed the scriptures, but he, he brought people back to a right interpretation and understanding of the scriptures, which was experienced as liberal to the traditionalists of his day. But you chose your rabbi. Even Jesus chose his rabbi for a while until Jesus came along and became the rabbi who chooses his disciples. And he wanted to emphasize this so much. You don't choose me. I choose that he said, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit. That's why Peter uses the word elect to describe the people of God. <clears throat> now, grab a pen if you've got one. There's some in the pews there. Grab a piece of paper or a notebook. Grab a Bible. Write this down. I don't want you to forget this. Elect means, here's what it means. Elect, just write this. Elect means elect. Chosen, you know what it means? Chosen. Predestined, you want to know what it means? Predestined. And I know it's an uncomfortable thing to process in our finite brains and in our loving hearts. It's complicated. And if you say, Pastor, why would God choose some bad people? There are a lot of bad people. That somehow it says that God chooses them to be in his family. And it seems like there are a lot of good people like the scribes and Pharisees who are doing everything right that don't get chosen. Why? Write this down. The answer, here's the mystery of the universe, the why question. I don't know. Except that he's wise. He knows how to make a good choice. Acts chapter 13, verse 48. The Gentiles heard the word of God, and as many as had been ordained to eternal life believed. It doesn't say as many who had believed were ordained to eternal life. It says as many as God had ordained to eternal life. On the basis of that, they believed. Matthew 11, Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son and those that the Son chooses to reveal the Father. John chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. Now that word for draws, I got this insight from R.C. Sproul, that word draw, no one can come to, the fa- to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. 
The only other ancient reference to that word is in reference to the drawing of water out of a well. And Sproul says, no one has ever called into a well and said, here, water, water, and, and by its own will, the water just came up out of the will. No, it, it, you got gravity to deal with, and water doesn't have a will. And so it's got to be a muscle outside of itself, an energy outside of itself, drawing it up, pulling it up. Those are only a small handful of teachings in the scripture about this, I know, troubling truth that I can't explain. But it doesn't make it untrue because I can't explain it. Well, the, but the word foreknowledge, that should solve it, right, Pastor Scott? Well, don't interpret the word foreknowledge from the vantage point of an individualistic 21st century American who thinks it's all about me and my choices and you and your choices. Remember, the Bible was written to communities, not to individuals. And foreknowledge, we think it means foresight, that God saw who would choose him, and therefore, based on what he saw ahead of time, he chose them. But what the word actually means in the Bible, in the Greek, is that God foreloved them. It's, it's like, let's say a couple gets married, and you know, a few years down the line, they say, you know what? Should we try to have a kid? And, and they get all excited and they're like, what, sh- what should we name it if it's a girl? What should we name the kid if it's a boy? And, and they start getting ahead in their hearts and minds even before the child is conceived. They're for loving that child. They're loving that child before that child is even born, just as it says in Ephesians, before the foundations of the world, before creation. God predestined you to be adopted as his daughters and sons, to be declared holy and beloved and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined you. In foreloving you, he predestined you to be adopted as his kids. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who famously taught these things and believed these things, was confronted by a man in his church in a you know, kind of humorous, snarky way. And the man said, Preacher, if God has predestined me to live or die, then I'm not going to take my medicine anymore. And Spurgeon said, well, if you take your medicine, you are probably predestined to live, but if you don't, your doctor tells me you're predestined to die. You know, there's this dance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility, but do not ever think that the will of a human being could ever overpower the will of God. It's not possible. If God wants you, God's going to have you. He's going to go through whatever he needs to go through and take you through whatever he's going to take you through in order to have you. If you're here, it's because God wanted you before you wanted him. Sounds so arrogant, though. We're the chosen ones. No, don't mistake being chosen with being choice. We are not choice people. We are chosen people, not because of ourselves, but in spite of ourselves. You know, Johnny Erickson Tata illustrates why and how and what it looks like for what being chosen, and she believes these things too, uh, what being chosen does to your humility. It, It ratchets up your humility rather than ridding of your humility. She says this. This is in an interview with Nancy Guthrie a number of years ago. 
uh, at the Gospel Coalition. She's been in a wheelchair. She's in her, well into her 70s now, and <coughs> she's been in a wheelchair since her teenage years from a diving accident. And she says, well, look at me in this wheelchair. Most people would think, oh, you're looking forward to heaven and the new body that you'll have there. And she would say, yeah, that's true. I am looking forward to that for sure. But she goes on and she says, but I'm really looking forward to the new heart, a heart free of manipulating others with precisely timed phrases, a heart free of fudging the truth, a heart free from hogging the spotlight and believing my own press, a heart free of not believing the best of others, a heart free of caving into fear or anxiety about the future. I cannot wait. More than anything else, I cannot wait to have a heart that is free of sin. Isn't it remarkable? Okay, so this woman is one of the most remarkably faithful people in the world. She has taken tragedy and stewarded it so beautifully and selflessly and impactfully and globally ever since her teenage years, as gut-wrenching as it has been during certain seasons. She's survived cancer. She's been through it all. And one would think she'd be hanging her hat on all that. But what does she hang her hat on? Not that God is going to reward me for the best in me, which he certainly will. But not in it, it has nothing to do with how God will save her. What she hangs her hat on is that God is going to give grace to me, even though there's all this that represents the worst in me. That's what the gospel is the sprinkled blood of Christ and what that accomplishes. And now we have dead grapes and dead wheat to bring life and nourishment into our bodies and into our souls. And so let's pray together as we prepare for the Lord's table. Lord Jesus, you, you remind us and you demonstrate to us that, that living things depend on dying things. And living souls depend on a dying son of God. Thank you for sprinkling your blood all over the ground so that you might lavish us with it as well and that you might fill us with it even at your table to remind us even as you nourish us with the truth that we are yours because we are yours and you've chosen for it to be so. Father, would you take this bread and take this cup? Would you set it apart? Would you consecrate it? Would you make it meaningful in its application to our bodies and to our souls and the belonging that we have with you and with each other? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.